edition for the YZFTX podcast. This is your host, Ezra Siddiqui. As a reminder, YZFTX is my platform to inform the South Asian community about Texas and national politics. You can find us on all forms of social media, such as Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Our handle is at YZFTX. You can also listen to our podcast segments on Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and iTunes. Last but not least, they will air on Coffee Mornings with Aisha on Monday mornings on Radio Azad. So don't forget, everyone, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. Okay, everyone, um, you know, this this episode is being recorded a few days after the horrific tragedy at Christ Church in New Zealand, and uh, we want to dedicate this episode to the 51 people um, who have tragically passed away from the terrorist attack that happened in Christ Church, New Zealand, and... Um, we have an interview today with uh, Deepa Ayer, and this was scheduled prior to the tragedy that occurred. Um, but the episode, you know, like I had stated earlier in our previous episodes this month, is that March is, you know, Women's History Month, and I wanted to highlight another uh, inspirational female um, that's been doing great, great uh, solidarity work, and that is with Deepa Ayer, and, and she's done a lot of great work. But, you know, before we get into the interview, um, I kind of want to give a little bit of background on what the interview is about and <clears throat> kind of my take on the situation. And <clears throat> I think um, for many of us, when we heard the news, of course, it's beyond devastating. But <clears throat> as an American Muslim, I think for many of us, we have had this fear right in the back of our heads with <clears throat> the current politician, the political uh, the current president of the United States, the current political rhetoric. Um, and I think many of us have had this fear that something like this was going to occur in America. And, you know, we've seen a lot of Islamophobia penetrating in, into America. We've seen it in the, in Europe, um, and especially in Western Europe. Um, but I don't think we ever thought of New Zealand as a country that has a lot of Islamophobic issues or their politicians, you know, you know, having Islamophobic rhetoric. And so I think, and, and this is just my perspective. So I think for me, the most shocking situation was, is obviously that a lunatic can come in and, and shoot people while in prayer. But the fact that it happened in a country where you don't hear in the news about having instances of Islamophobia and maybe they have already been there and we just haven't been aware of it in the news but I think that's what really troubled me the most that in a country that we don't know as having a lot of Islamophobic rhetoric this horrific tragedy happened and it can really happen anywhere and I think that's kind of the fear that so many of us feel and um and, you know, I want to know when will politicians here in America and abroad and the media acknowledge and act on the blatant Islamophobia penetrating our country? I mean, now is the time more than ever we have to hold the media and politicians accountable. Um, Islamophobia, whether by words, actions, or complicit silence, is the root cause for the hate crimes perpetrated against Muslim and South Asian communities. And, I mean, we've already witnessed how Islamophobia leads to violence at Oak Creek, where you know, the Sikh community was, many of them were killed at the Gurdwara, um, Quebec City, um, and the thousands of South Asians and Muslims who have been beaten or killed in America. There was also the Indian man in, in Kansas, you know, that was killed from 
because of Islamophobia, and it's simply because of the way they look. And so it's so vital for us to stand together in solidarity and speak out when we see any form of xenophobia. And just to give you a background of how much Islamophobia has been on the rise, um, I'm going to quote an article from a lady by the name of someone who wrote an article in The Nation, and she is also part of the organization SALT called South Asian Americans Leading Together, um, in which Deep Ayer, our um, guest on this podcast, was the former executive director of. And in that article, it states that attacks against Muslim, South Asians, Sikhs, Hindu, Arab, and Middle Eastern communities in the U.S. were up a staggering 45% in 2017. And then SALT has an upcoming report called Communities on Fire, and they reveal the scale of the violence under this administration. So between Election Day 2016 and Election Day 2017, SALT documented 302 incidents of hate violence and xenophobic political rhetoric aimed at Muslim, South Asian, Sikh, Hindu, Arab, and Middle Eastern communities in the United States of which an astounding 82% were motivated by anti-Muslim sentiment. The 302 incidents are a more than 45% increase from the year leading up to the presidential election levels, not seen since the year after September 11th. So as we can see from this statistic that Islamophobia has most definitely been on the rise, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with media, the way they portray Islamophobia and, and politicians. And I want to state also um, that um, we have been tracking how politicians have been reacting to the Christchurch shootings, um, and, and we have posted them on the Facebook pages, and we'll definitely link them to the blog post as well, um, so that you can see how your state reps are you know, what are they saying? Because it's so important since Texas has one of the largest Muslim populations in America, it's so important and vital for the politicians to stand up for us to realize that Islamophobia was the reasoning behind this attack and the fact that um, they need to stand with us, right? They need to show their solidarity with us that, yes, you are a part of us, our part of our community, and we need to stand up for you to make sure that you feel safe and that you feel okay, which is why it's so important for politicians to speak out. So we've already posted on social media how all the Democratic, potential 2020 Democratic candidates have um, what they've made their statements on. Um, I will say Senator Ted Cruz has made statements. I will say that as of this recording, Governor Abbott hasn't said, said anything. Neither has Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Neither has Senator John Cornyn, who is running uh, for 2020 U.S. Senator um, from the state of Texas. And various other state and um, state reps and senators from both parties, the Republican and Democratic parties, have been silent. Um, Again, we are posting this on social media on Facebook, so if you if you see um, one that we've missed, please post it in the comments. Uh, we want to make sure that our community understands and realizes that we want to make sure our representatives are being held accountable and uh, that they will speak out for our community. So, I'm going to turn this over uh, to the interview now with Deep Air, and um, I hope you all will find this discussion about how we hold politicians and media accountable um, with the current political climate, especially in light of what has happened at Christ Church. Hope you will find it to be a way um, to move forward on what we should do next as a community and how we can work together in solidarity.
So a little bit about Deepa Ayer. She is a South Asian American writer, lawyer, and racial justice advocate. Her areas of expertise include the post-9-11 America, experiences of South Asian, Muslim, Arab, and Sikh immigrants, national security and immigration policies, and racial equity and solidarity practices. She served for a decade as the executive director of South Asian Americans Leading Together, also known as SALT, where she helped to shape SALT's work on civil and immigrant rights issues. Her experiences at SALT formed the basis for her first book, which we reference in the podcast segment, We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future. It has received a 2016 American Book Award and was selected as a top 10 multicultural nonfiction books of 2015 by Booklist. Her current work includes a collaborative project around rapid response coordination in the wake of criminalization policies and efforts, and a solidarity project, which includes a monthly podcast called Solidarity, Solidarity Is This. Thank you so much for joining us today, Deepa. Thanks so much for having me. So, um, with the recent and tragic events of Christchurch, I I can't emphasize how important this conversation uh, needs to be had today. Exactly. I completely agree with you. It's really heartbreaking and jarring, and I know that you and other people around the country are feeling the same way. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I've kind of stated this previously is like, it's not only politicians that I think are, um, perpetuating the Islamophobic rhetoric in this country and around the world, but I definitely think media also has a part to play in it. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how you think mainstream media covers, you know, the South Asian American and Muslim American communities. You've mentioned it, um, some instances in your book, We Too Sing America. And now, you know, with the Christchurch incident, you know, I, I would just like to hear your thoughts on what, how you think the media has been doing previously and how they're doing currently with this uh, horrific tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, I would say that there have been some shifts, mainly thanks to community advocacy with mainstream media. Um, in the probably like 10 years or so after the 9-11 attacks, um, what we often used to see was a double standard when it came to uh, describing acts of mass violence and talking about the perpetrators. And so when it was someone who was Muslim in particular, um, or even other people of color, they would immediately be branded as terrorists. Um, there would be um, sort of a, uh, a maligning of that person and their family and their community. Um, there would also then be uh, community raids or law enforcement would be getting involved, not, not just with the person, but with the entire community. And when you look at um, white uh, perpetrators of violence, like whether it's Dylan Roof or others, you um, see that the media doesn't call them terrorists necessarily. Uh, They call them shooters oftentimes. You also see that the frame is um, not mass violence, but say a hate crime or a crime. You also see that uh, the media often does stories about the perpetrator to look at, well, what propelled this person to act in this way? What might have happened with their mental and emotional state? So there's a sense of, yeah, sort of. Disturbed, I feel like, is a phrase they use a lot. But that that notion is not applicable, it seems like, to Muslims, that they're not allowed to be mentally disturbed. Like, this had to be because of their faith. That's what caused them to commit these crimes. 
Yeah, and it's also all about the community as a whole. These, you know, someone who's Muslim commits a crime of mass violence. It's not just about them. It really extends to their entire community. It becomes a malign, a maligning or an indictment of the faith as a whole and the community that they're part of. But as I said, we have seen a shift thanks to community advocacy and people pointing out that this was um, incredibly unfair and there was a double standard in place. And so you have seen a shift um, in mainstream media over the last five to seven years or so where um, the ways that they talk about terrorists and the ways that they are portraying these acts of mass violence uh, don't have as much of the double standard as they used to. Right. And I kind of wanted to um, kind of point out to one of the instances you had uh, placed in your um, book, and it was talking about, you know, Islamophobia isn't just impacting just the Muslim community. It's also impacting the South or A- South Asian community and the Arab mm-hmm. community as a whole, right, regardless of religion. And um, one of the instances you talk about was um, a gentleman's share Singh, um, who was of the Sikh faith, and that they had, you know, posted photos and images of him mm-hmm. on national media, but neglected to report that he had not been charged with any crime. I'm quoting from your book. Instead, mm-hmm. the public was left with unexplained pictures of a bearded and turbaned brown man suspected of being a terrorist and apprehended by law enforcement authorities. Do you think situations like these still occur in mainstream media? Yeah, so that situation that you're describing is some, something that happened, I believe, either on 9-11 or right after, the day after 9-11. And um, what that is, is a situation where um, people who are adjacent to Muslim communities, because I think it's really important to make it clear that Muslim communities are the people who are dealing with, confronting, and bearing the burden of um, Islamophobia first and foremost. Most, but as you mentioned, there are you know communities adjacent to Muslim communities. So whether they're Sikh communities in this particular example that you mentioned, who are perceived to be Muslim, whether they are um, even Hindu communities um, because of brown skin um, or language, or whether they're Arab communities um, who are not Muslim uh, because of national origin or language, um, all of these communities have been affected by Islamophobia, and that's why it's been so important for our communities to come together and to band together in solidarity and to talk about how Islamophobia affects all of us. Um, In terms of your question on whether this still continues to happen, no, I think that, you know, there's definitely been um, a lot of education, a lot of media education that's happened over the decade and a half since 9-11. So you don't see as many of these egregious incidents happening as you used to. But I think that there's still a level of education that needs to happen with media around how they talk about our communities and the fact that they usually frame Muslim, Arab, South Asian communities in one or two media narratives. They don't really have a diverse way of looking at us or talking about us. And how do we try and force the media to, you know, redefine this type of narrative? Um... Well, I think that part of what we can do is to educate. So, for example, if we're in local communities around the country, um, part of what we could do is set up meetings with editorial boards where we're actually doing a training for journalists and members of the editorial board of your um, city newspaper, your town newspaper, your state newspaper on how they should be reporting on our communities. Um, and, And that 
vein, really talk about the fact that um, our communities are, you know, we there are a multiplicity of narratives around us, right, right. And, and and about us. Um, but oftentimes, especially with South Asians, and I point this out in my book, we're either painted as the spelling bee winners uh-huh. and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs or terrorists in training. Um, there's a, not a lot in between that's right. talked about us, right? And so I think doing these meetings and education with local ed boards and journalists in your area is a great way to start to say there are a multiplicity of narratives about our communities. Here are the people that you should be profiling and talking about. Here are the students in our community. Here are the places of worship and what they do in our communities so that um, journalists actually have a larger toolbox to go to when they're reporting about us and they're not waiting until an act of terrorism or mass violence to talk about us. Okay. Um, I think that's something for our community to definitely keep in mind and really um, work on that proactive outreach with uh, editorial boards and other media organizations. Um, I want to, you know, also talk about, while we've been focusing on media, I also want to talk about impacts of political rhetoric, right? Like we've seen a lot of Islamophobia um, talked within you know, what was happening in 2016 with President Trump stating that, oh, we need to, like, I think Islam hates us and, and, and so many other politicians um, saying really insightful comments. And so I want to ask you, um, you know, because you do talk about in your book about the impacts of political rhetoric. And do you think it's contributed to the current rise in hate crimes? And do you mm-hmm. know kind of what are the statistics as to how hate crimes have risen over the years against, you know, the South Asian and Muslim communities? Yeah, so... Absolutely. Xenophobic rhetoric is something that we have seen in the political realm since 9-11, and it has been targeted towards Muslim, Arabs, and South Asian communities. So um, one of the most egregious aspects of that was when we saw the hearings on Muslim radicalization, that's what it was called, not my words, uh, by Representative Peter King in Congress, and um, I think that was 2010, um, and where it was an out-and-out, you know, exposure of how some congressional members felt about Muslim communities. Um, We've seen that most recently with the ways in which Representatives Tlaib and Omar have been um, targeted. These are the two Muslim members of Congress, the two women Muslim members of Congress, and how they've been targeted. Um, But we've also seen political um, officials, not just in Congress, but um, in local communities around the country, who talk about our communities as people that should be profiled, people that should be targeted. And of course, we've got a sitting president who, on his campaign trail, talked about a complete shutdown of Muslims entering this country, right? So xenophobic political rhetoric is one of the factors that can contribute to hate violence happening in this country. And we know from as we know from reports of hate crimes that um, when some hate crimes occur, the perpetrator often um, echoes the sentiments of what they may have heard from a person in political office. So that's why it's so important for elected officials to abide by a very high standard of no tolerance when it comes to engaging in xenophobic political rhetoric or Islamophobic political rhetoric. And it's also why we as community members have to call them to action and take them to task every time it happens. 
I agree with you. And I think something that's been really important is, you know, after this um, Christchurch incident, I've definitely been uh, checking my social media to see what other uh, politicians are saying. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the 2020 elections coming up, I've, mm-hmm. I've been looking at all what the Democratic um, c- candidates are stating about this incident. You know, I think for us, it's really important to know and understand that the politicians are also there to stand by us. And, mm-hmm. and 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 to support us, right? Like I, I'm starting to see, you know, and, and I'm focusing more on national and then Texas politics. Like I haven't seen that many Texas state reps uh, posting things, just a few. And I think Texas has one of the largest Muslim populations um, mm-hmm. in America. And on top of that, I, I've seen, you know, Mayor Turner from Houston and Mayor, um, Man, I'm forgetting his name right now, but the mayor from Dallas, um, you know, they've been putting out statements. And I think while it's very important to make sure that um, that politicians don't have, you know, Islamophobic rhetoric, it's also just as important for them to stand up um, for the Muslim and South Asian communities when these horrific incidents mm-hmm. happen to show that they're in solidarity with our community, that we are not different, that we are also part of the American and Texan fabric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is important. Um, I think that's one of the ways in which elected officials, college and university presidents, um, the executives at corporations, nonprofit executive directors can all be engaging right now, interfaith leaders, is to send out statements of solidarity and support. And those statements can be very simple in the sense that, you know, they talk about um being concerned about and sending sympathies for those who have lost their lives and their families, and that they um, also evince a pledge or a commitment to end Islamophobia and white supremacy. I think it's important to do both um, and to stand, of course, in, in uh, solidarity with Muslim communities in the United States, if that's where you are and you're issuing a statement. But I think it's really important that um, statements of support uh, acknowledge what motivated the hate-filled mass violence that we saw in Christchurch and and, in other parts of the country. I agree. And I think it's very important that you brought that up because that distinction definitely needs to be made. You see certain politicians saying like, oh, we stand with the people of New Zealand. This thing is really horrible. And then you see certain politicians, you know, calling it out as a terrorist attack, realizing that Islamophobia was a cause for this attack. Um, and I'm talking with, you know, the Christchurch incidents, but mm-hmm. I think that's a great point that you brought up. And mm-hmm. with all that being said, how I want your opinion, you know, you you work in solidarity. You have a po- podcast that is um, about solidarity. What can we do as a community moving forward to be in solidarity with our South Asian Muslim and Arab brothers and sisters? Well, I think, you know, there are a number of things we can do. One is that we can all get educated. I think that there is a level of education that we need to be responsible for, for ourselves and for the people around us, around the uh, the impact of Islamophobia and racism 
and xenophobia on communities of color, immigrants and refugees. So I think that that's really important. Um, a second piece is that if we're in any position of leadership or um, have a network around us or we have access to media like you do, um, that we actually use our voice to raise awareness and to speak up and speak out. Um, and then a third piece is that we do a lot, uh, some of that interpersonal bridge building um, that we need to be doing so that we are not living and operating in silos in this country, mm -hmm. um, so that we actually reach out to our local mosques and gurdwaras and temples. We get to know the people in um, our schools who come from different backgrounds that we actually learn about community-based organizations from those communities that you mentioned. And then the fourth is that we have to engage in systems level and policy level change, um, that we need to make sure that there are ways in which people are feeling like they can exert their civil rights in very, in the workplace or in schools where they're being bullied. Um, we need to make sure that law enforcement isn't profiling Muslim communities and surveilling them. Um, so we need to actually act on all of those different levels ourselves, interpersonal our organizations and at systems and policy levels in order to really be in allyship with South Asian Muslim and Arab communities. Okay, well, thank you for sharing those steps. Um, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, you know, talking about um, the ways that we can work together in solidarity and um, making sure that our community stays informed about the many ways we can change the media narrative and how we can hold our politicians accountable for um, the rhetoric that they put out. Thanks so much, Ezra. It was great to be um, speaking with you today. All right, folks, that's our segment for today. I hope you all found this conversation between Deepa and I helpful to understand how we hold media and politicians accountable and the importance of solidarity. Deepa Ayer has been on the forefront of really pushing for solidarity and really pushing for policies that are beneficial for the South Asian community, which is why um, we really wanted to highlight her this month uh, for Women's History Month. And she's even been outspoken about policies that are detrimental to the South Asian community, and she has no shame whatsoever to call out those South Asians which in which she feels are harmful to the South Asian community as well. Um, I highly encourage you all to check out her book. Um, we'll have a link on the bio to where you can um, buy it. And to also follow her on social media, she really makes sure that our community is informed about anything that is beneficial or detrimental to the South Asian community, especially on the federal level. So I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. I know that we did not have the chance to talk about the upcoming 2020 presidential candidates and um, Bill's the Boglehe section where we talk about the crazy bills filed in the Texas legislature. But we will talk about all of that next week. Um, we really wanted to focus this segment on the horrible tragedy that occurred at Christchurch and what we as a South Asian and Muslim community can do to hold our politicians accountable and how we need to redirect the narrative in the media. So again, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. Until next time. <laughs>